And please be seated. And please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 27. I only have Matthew 28 there on the insert. We'll start at the end of uh, Matthew 27. Job lived around the time of Abraham, most scholars think, so 2,000 years before the time of Christ. And Job asked the question on behalf of humankind, if a man dies, will he live again? That's a question every person has asked either quietly or said it out loud. If a person dies, can they, will they live again? And what we have in Matthew 27 and 28 is the answer, the definitive answer to that question. We have the resurrection of Christ, and those who are in Christ are raised with him. And his resurrection is the start of the overall resurrection that will take place, that has taken place internally, as you've been made alive together with Christ, and will ultimately see fulfillment when he comes again. And so we look forward to seeing this again in the passage before us. So we'll pick up where we left off on Good Friday. After Jesus bowed his head, died on the cross, the soldiers confirmed that he was dead. His body was taken down from the cross. And now I'll start reading at Matthew 27, verse 55. This is the Word of God. It's inspired. It's infallible. It's authoritative. We can trust it. We have here the truth. Matthew 27, starting at verse 55. I'll read through verse 28. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will arise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made this, the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. 
And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell the people, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and make you and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Richard Gaffin said of this resurrection account, the resurrection of Christ is the beginning of the new and final world order, an order described as spiritual and heavenly. It is the dawn of the new creation. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord Jesus, you are the one who could not be held by the grave. You burst the bonds of death, and now you live and reign forevermore. You are the first fruits of the great and final resurrection that we await. We await this in you, because of you. O Lord, we have read and heard this story before, and now we want to read and hear it again. By the ministry of your Holy Spirit, please guide our time in your word. I pray that this would be so, and that our affections would be directed to worship and obey you. I pray this in Christ, our risen Savior. Amen. Although you wouldn't know it, unfortunately, by their teaching today, as American church history is concerned, there has hardly been an institution that produced more helpful biblical teaching and scholarship than Princeton Seminary between the years 1812 and 1920 or so. And among the Princeton greats was one of my favorite theologians, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. He was preaching a sermon in 1896 entitled The Risen Christ, and he provides some preliminary thoughts that will help us as we walk through this magnificent passage together. Warfield, in his sermon, said, The resurrection of Christ is fundamental to the Christian's assurance that Christ's work is complete and his redemption is accomplished. He went on to say, it's not enough that we should be able to say he was delivered for our trespasses. We must be able to add he was raised for our justification. That he died manifests his love and his willingness to save. It is his rising again that manifests his power and his ability to save. I think Warfield is right on with this to help us understand the full scope of importance concerning the resurrection. There is no Christianity without the bodily resurrection of Christ. And if you're somewhere that says they're Christian, but they don't believe in the resurrection, they're not Christian. 
because to be Christian is to believe in the risen Savior. This is fundamental. The resurrection certifies that God approved Jesus' sacrifice that saves us. Without the resurrection, we don't have that approval from the Father, and we're still dead in our sins. We're still enslaved to our sins. We're still condemned in our sins. The resurrection of Christ, it is the fundamental apologetical fact of Christianity. Of the four Gospels, they all give accounts of the resurrection, sort of like looking at a child's transparency book that I used to have when I was a kid, where the base page had all the essential truths you needed to tell the story that was going to happen in the book. But then you would overlay another sheet, and it would give you more details. And then in this case, with the four Gospels, you could do that then with the third one and the fourth one. Mark was written first. It's the shortest of the Gospels. Matthew is longer Gospel than Mark, but the section on the crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection are about the same. Then you get more detail altogether with Luke. Luke has more detail than any of the Gospels. He really sets to give specifics on every point. And you can lay that over the top. And now you have a harmony. Then you add to it John, who gives even more details about what happened during the month and a half that Jesus uh, was appearing on earth after his resurrection. All four together give us a beautiful, harmonized, full picture. But for this morning, we're going to stick mostly with Matthew. I'll make some reference to the other Gospels. So let's look at Matthew together, Matthew 27, starting at verse 55. Consider as we go the particulars of this resurrection account. Notice first in verse 55, you see there were also many women there. Many people were there for the crucifixion. There were several different uh, women who were, in some cases, wives of apostles or disciples at that time. Others who were believers who came to Christ through his ministry. Mary Magdalene, one who had demons, She was delivered from demons. And so there are many who are following. Many women were there while the crucifixion happened and thereafter. It says they were looking from a a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. And here, Matthew mentions Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James. Mary the other Mary will sometimes be referred to here. Now, it's important to know that Mary is a very popular name in Israel at this time. It's based on the Hebrew name Miriam. This would be the sister of Moses who helped to save the prophet Moses. You can understand why this would be such a popular name. Joseph was a popular name for Jewish boys as well. Uh, Many Marys. In fact, there may be as many as five different Marys in the New Testament. Here, though, we're specifically uh, considering Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, who's the mother of James. Continues, verse 57, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. There you see that name, Joseph, a popular one, who also was a disciple of Jesus. Now, it's interesting to note that Joseph was also a member of the Sanhedrin. He was on the Jewish ruling council, but he was also a learner or a student of Jesus, not disciple in the same way as the disciples who became apostles, but he was very friendly to the message of Christ, yet he was on the Jewish council, the same council that condemned him. It said that he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Joseph was a rich person. We know this by the fact that he even had his own tomb like this. Only very wealthy people could afford to have this land and then to hew out a a cave there where they can bury their family members. And he goes to Pilate, and he has some immediate access to the governor, and asks for the body of Jesus, and Pilate orders it to be given to him. Now, note that the normal practice for Roman crucifixion or execution would be to leave the body on the cross for days. 
to let more disgrace come upon the person who committed these crimes as animals and birds and such would be eating as the body would decay. It was a terrible and awful sight, a final disgrace to an already disgraceful act. But there were Jewish laws, Jewish laws that said that this could not be the case, that a body be held overnight, lest it bring disgrace or bring defilement to the people, and especially because Passover was right upon them. So Joseph goes, and of course, Pilate, not wanting any more of uh, a mounting insurrection over this, grants that Joseph of Arimathea, a town about a few miles northwest of Jerusalem, he comes and takes custody of the body of Christ. We're told that Joseph was a respected member of the council in the book of Mark. Luke calls him a righteous man or a just man who did not agree with the decision of the council, it says. So the brutal actions taken against Jesus must have been been terribly troubling to Joseph. He wanted to counter this disgrace to Christ, no doubt. In verse 59, Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud. Expense upon expense, no problem for Joseph. He believes Jesus is worthy of this. There are no looms uh, to weave fabrics in these times, so there was It was very expensive to have this kind of high-grade linen that Joseph used. Verse 59, he wrapped the body, Jesus' body, in this linen shroud. Verse 60, laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. Joseph was likely preparing his own tomb, his family's tomb, probably just invested in buying that land and then had it hewn out. And then there would be shelves inside in most cases where multiple family members over years could be added to those. Uh, They would wrap them tightly, and then years later, add another, and so forth like this. But this tomb had nobody in it yet. It had just been finished. It says that he had a a great stone uh, over the entrance. Usually there would be a track, and a big rolling stone would go over the front of it so that no one could. It could take two or three people to move the stone. And here Pilate grants it to Joseph to take the custody of the body of Jesus Pilate now has a record of the man who has custody. This would be good for record keeping and making sure. And here this burial occurs. It's interesting when you think of Jesus' final days. Um, He's placed on the foal of a donkey that no one ever rode on. And he's placed in a tomb where no one had ever been buried. Think of the namesake, Joseph of Arimathea. The name of Jesus' earthly father was, of course, Joseph as well. I read one commentator who said it in a bit of a poem form. One Joseph was appointed by God to be guardian of Christ's body in the virgin womb. And another Joseph was the guardian of his body in the virgin tomb. And each Joseph is called a just man by Scripture. Interestingly, also 700 years before Christ died, Isaiah 53 gives the most vivid depiction of his death. And towards the end of that explanation, the prophet said, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, even forecasting the kind of graveyard that his body would first be put in. Matthew wants us to know there are several people witnessing this. We know from the other gospels, many more, but he points out these two in in particular. Look at verse 61. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. So they were there to see him be crucified. They were there to see him be taken down off the cross. And they were there to see him be put in the tomb. Now certainly, if you were trying to concoct a story that wasn't true, you wouldn't give this kind of detail. You wouldn't normally pick two women in a society that had a very low view of women as chief witnesses of this. The reason is because this is how it happened. And so this listed, and we see it for us. We know that the other accounts give us uh, even more of a depiction of those who witnessed it. But look at verse 62. 
The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. It's one of my favorite parts of the story because it's one of the lamest things anybody says in the whole, whole course of it. Look what they try to suggest. The chief priests say, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. And here's the thing that's lame. Lest his disciples, oh, by the way, the disciples who ran away the first time they had a chance. Those disciples, those disciples might go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. This is an incredible fabrication when you think about it. Um, The idea that these, with all due respect to the disciples pre-resurrection, were complete cowards. denying, getting away from, now knowing that they were associated with Jesus, they're going to get as far away as possible. They're not going to go sneak around and try to steal the corpse. For what purpose? They want to be forgotten. They don't want to be involved with stealing a body, especially with all these eyes on Christ's grave area. Just the knowledge of what could be happening there. John Chrysostom is an early church father. Well, fourth century right after the time of Constantine, when Christianity opened up, he became one of the first well-known itinerant preachers. People loved to listen to him expound the word of God. And when he comes to this portion where the chief priest tried to argue that the disciples might come try to steal the body, he, in his sermon, said, how would they steal him? How could they steal him? Oh, foolish of all men. For how, I ask, did the disciples steal him, men poor and unlearned? and not venturing so much as to show themselves, they're in hiding. They're not going to come out to steal the body. Furthermore, Chrysostom says, how could they remove the stone that was made sure? How could they have escaped the observation of so many? No, they were afraid of death. They would not have attempted without purpose and fruitlessly to venture in defiance of so many who were on the watch. And that, moreover, they were fearful and timid. What they had done before showed this clearly. At least when they saw Christ be seized, they all rushed away from him. If then, at that time, they did not dare so much as to stand their ground when they saw him alive, how, when he was dead, could they but have feared such a number of soldiers? Pilate says to the chief priests, you have a guard of soldiers. He grants them a guard of soldiers. This could be anywhere from two to 20 soldiers. We're not told how many. Go make... Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, to seal it, they would simply take the stone. There would be some space around it. They would wrap a rope around it and secure it to each side of the entrance. And then they would put a a literal seal of wax, a ball of wax that they would press down upon the rope and even on the side portions as well. If anyone tried to tamper with it, the wax seal would be noticeably disturbed. Now we come to the first verse of chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to to see the tomb. So we know from the other accounts that they were on their way to the tomb when Jesus actually rose and left. The only witness of that are the angels. We just know he's gone. And look what happens in verse 2. This is with the guards there. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Just symbolic of the power of God's messenger, the ease that he can move the stone. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. I think we could all appreciate the guards' response. 
They were paralyzed by what they saw. They, they no, no doubt passed out. They were looked dead if you came upon them. And then the women arrive at the tomb at this moment. And the angel, still there, addresses the women. But the angels, verse 5, said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Pay attention to verse 6 here because it's an important verse for us in the Christian life. For pastors especially, I think. Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. For he has risen. As he said, come, see the place where he lay. And notice he, does, he says, fear not. Um, yes, because there's an angel, it's an angel sitting there and you would be terrified. But there's something deeper about this. Fear not. Fear no longer. For he is not here. He's not dead. He is risen. So all the fears you had that were surrounding the culmination, the moment of his death, they're subsided now. They're gone. In fact, Matthew Henry says it well. It's like saying, fear not, for his resurrection will be your consolation. Fear not is not just about the immediate fear of seeing the angel. It's about all real fear, ultimate fear being removed because he has risen. You know, when I find myself in the position of consoling someone after they have lost a loved one, when a believing person has lost a believing loved one, I immediately think of this passage, or many passages I love to read and share. But this passage gives me a great amount of courage to speak um, substance to people in this moment. Fear not. He is not here, for he is risen. And if your loved one is united to him, he is with him. And he will rise again, and we will too. And I don't say that like Ralph Emerson Waldo, little poster, superficial statement, just to kind of make you feel better in the moment. It's with substance that Christ is risen, and that means that you too will rise again, and your loved one will as well. And they're not dead. They're alive together with Christ in Abraham's bosom, as it's described, before we finally have that resurrection that comes. It's with great substance. It's not cliches and empty missives to comfort people when they lose someone. If that person who died is in Christ, they're hidden with Christ. They're in Christ. That means they await his final coming where they'll receive their glorified body. And Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit of all of our resurrections who are in Christ. I hope that doesn't sound like just saying something to someone to make them feel better to get over the moment. It's real. Jesus rose again, and we have our hope in him, in only him. It's all the hope we need to have. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place. Come and see for yourself where he laid. Then go tell others. Verse 7 then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the tomb. They did the right thing. They believed. They left the tomb. They went with a mixture of fear and joy. You can understand this. It's a beautiful picture, really, a simple picture for the church. Once we behold the risen Christ, we should worship him, and then we should go tell other people. That's exactly what we see. Verse 9, behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came and came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. That's exactly what we should do. We meet Christ, we should take hold and worship him. And then we go and tell others so they can worship him too. This is exactly what is manifested by the women who meet him. It's interesting, 
what Jesus says first. Now, the women could not be to blame for the same kinds of things that the disciples did in their running away. But you could imagine wondering, what would the risen Christ say first? After all, there could be some correction that is due the disciples after their failing. Why not have his first words, I need to see Peter, I need to correct him. Where is Peter? Why did they fail me in the garden, might have been the first question. Why did you all forsake me? Why did you deny me when push came to shove, you denied me? Why did you betray me into the hands of evildoers? Why did you run away? Why did you fall asleep? Not at all. That's not what the risen Jesus says. Greetings. Greetings. These words of ultimate comfort and grace. Total grace. There's nobody Jesus could have talked to that didn't have a hand in his crucifixion. And he rises again and says greetings. Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Go tell Go tell my brothers, do not be afraid, he says again. He's got to keep repeating this. Understandable. There's got to be this mixture, this fear and joy. We see it. Verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city. Remember the guards who were asleep or fell asleep or who actually got knocked out by seeing Christ or seeing the angel? These guards, they probably told their friends, and what do we do about this? This is what happened. And they're matching stories, and they're saying, this is what happened. We need to go tell this. Certainly, if they know angels came and spoke, that's the best chance they have to survive this and not be looked at as failures. This is what happened. And so they go and tell. But you know what happens in verse 12, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, the leaders talked about the story, they decided to pay off the soldiers. They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while they were asleep. We already addressed how that's a ridiculous idea, that they would even do this. But they take the money. There's not a lot of choice for them now. They're in a bit, a bit of a difficult situation. It won't look good for them, though, if it turns out they were sleeping when the body was taken. Notice how far this goes, this conspiracy goes. The leaders say, if this comes to the governor's ears... We will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. The governor finds out you fell asleep during, we'll pay him off too. That's how powerful and how deep this went. To the point, it says in verse 15, they took the money and did as were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, Matthew skips over a lot of the details of what happened in the month and a half that Jesus appeared to the disciples and over 500 people before he ascended into heaven. But I chose this passage because I want us to see what's true, the fact of the resurrection as we've seen it, and then what Christ calls us to do in light of this resurrection. And Matthew does this best as it goes right to the end. Now look at verse 16 because there's a bit of a 16 and 17 set up what's known as Jesus' great commission, this great mission that he gives. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. So this is a general statement about their uh, meeting Jesus back in Galilee. The other gospels fill in the details of what happened. Ultimately, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, the Mount of Olives. This is where uh, Jesus would speak to them and teach them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So in the course of this time, Though the disciples knew it was the risen Christ, they had doubts, some of them did anyways, about 
what it all meant. It could mean the, the whole of the disciples, you know, the, the band of 500 that it's seen, but it seems pretty specific here, talking about the 11, the main 11 who would become the apostles. So because of this, the, Jesus knows this, he gathers them together, and these last verses really give us our marching orders, the, the response we should have if we believe Christ is raised again. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's difficult if someone has doubts, but he's saying I have all the authority. I can give it to you. But here's the, here's the, the thing that empowers them. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This would have surely quelled the doubts of those wondering, how could we do this? How could we go and bring this message if you're going to leave? They were prepared for that reality. But the words we should not go over lightly. I am with you always. Now when we hear somebody who's ready to die and they'll tell us something to remember them by. And in that way, we think of them as always, you'll hear people say, oh, they're with you if you remember, if you keep their memory alive. But that's not what Jesus is saying, not the risen Christ. He's not saying I am with you always to mean my example will live on through you. That's not what he's saying. That's not what Jesus means. I am with you always doesn't mean my ideals will carry on if you follow them. That's not what he's saying. I would be doubtful too if I had to go give this message and just kind of remember back. That's, what's gonna, that's how it's going to perpetuate. I am with you always does not mean you should keep my memory alive, dear disciples. I am with you always is the statement of a living Savior who intends to actively accompany them in the mission. That's the living Christ. So when he says, I am with you always, what do we fear? What, what do we fear? He is with us always, he says. So go, in your going, make disciples. How do we make disciples? First, express to them how they can be right with God. They come to Christ and then they learn from Christ, teaching whatsoever I have commanded you. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Identify them with the true and living God. That's the mission that's called upon, we're called upon. So what's the application in a nutshell from the resu- about the resurrection that we've just revisited? First of all, what is true? Second of all, what we then do? The resurrection is true. He died for our sins and was raised for our justification. His promise to be our substitute and give us eternal life is true. It's verified by the resurrection. Because he overcame death, we are made to share in his righteousness. Our sins are paid for and we receive his righteousness and are thereby accepted by God the Father. Because we are in Christ, if you are in Christ, you are a partaker of his resurrection already. You've been given a new life. You're actually born again to a new life. Your physical body dies, but then you're given a new body for glory, for eternity, a lot longer than the time that we are without one. The resurrection, as it said by one scholar, his resurrection drags ours in its train. We are guaranteed this glorious bodily resurrection like Christ. It's a picture of the resurrection to come. In 1 Corinthians, Paul dwells on this. He says that, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits, the first of the harvest of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, 
so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, is a forecast of the resurrection of those who have already died in Christ. It's also a forecast of our resurrection if we should be alive when he comes again. What to do? First, we are in this light. In this light, we are to live for him. That's the great what to do on the basis of what is true. Paul says in Philippians, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with the full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, is to, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what it means to live for Christ, the risen Christ going forward from his resurrection. Paul says to the Colossians and to us, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him. What to do with the risen Christ? Christ is now your life. It doesn't mean set your mind on heavenly things so that you don't do any earthly good. It means set your mind on the risen Christ and then look at everything else on the earthly level through that lens. Let that be what sets your priorities. That's what people who believe the resurrection do. I mean, what else could you do? We would set our lives according to what Christ would command us concerning. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he wrote multiple books, but two inspired books in 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ controls us. It drives us. It compels us. It, it steers us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, who for their sake died and was raised. Because he was died and was raised, we live for him. Therefore, Paul continues, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So we now live for Christ and we want other people to be reconciled to God in Christ. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I began with a quote from Benjamin Warfield, so I'll close with one. Again, speaking in his sermon on the risen Christ. Warfield said that Jesus died manifests his love and his willingness to save. It is his rising again that manifests his power and ability to save. We cannot be saved by a dead Christ who undertook but could not perform and who still lies under the Syrian sky, another martyr of impotent love. To save he must pass not merely to, but through death. If the penalty was fully paid, it cannot have broken him. It must needs have been broken upon him. The resurrection of Christ is thus the indispensable evidence of his completed work of his accomplished redemption. It is only because he rose from the dead that we know that the ransom he offered was sufficient, the sacrifice was accepted, and that we are his purchased possession. And finally, 
Warfield said, in one word, the resurrection of Christ is fundamental to the Christian hope and Christian confidence. Job asked the question, and everybody here probably has too, if a person dies, can they live again? And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. In your resurrection, O Lord, we have the assurance that you are the Lord of heaven and earth. And it is your right to rule and take the reins of the universe. They are in your hands. Oh, the comfort, the joy, the courage that dwells in the great fact that you, Jesus, are the risen one, the seed of David and the head over all things. May we bow down before you and worship you and then go quickly and tell everybody we know and love that you are alive. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let us respond by turning